All right, Tom. Um, another question from the MBT forum. Mike has an observation and thought experiment that he would like you to comment on. And it has to do with consciousness and free will. Now, some of this you may have already answered. For consciousness to express its free will intent and produce an effect within the boundaries of this virtual reality, it seems the rule set generally limits an IUOC, that is, individuated unit of consciousness, to a single avatar. From the viewpoint of the little picture, it should then appear that this avatar produces effects in the virtual reality that can be traced back to a cause without a cause. For example, as an experiment, if the cause and effect chain of a human raising its right arm was traced back and examined at the greatest resolution possible, a boundary would be found somewhere at the quantum level in the brain. This causal boundary would disapprove determinism and could perhaps take quantum mechanics a step further than just random probability. Perhaps this is part of the reason why we have not come to a full understanding of how the human brain works. It is not just the Big Bang that appears acausal with a mystical beginning, but the workings of the brain as well. Okay, well, you know, the, my answer to that would be it's a virtual brain. Right? A brain is a physical thing. It's a virtual brain. The brain does not create consciousness. The brain... Is a is a virtual thing, just like just like the body, just like the elf. Okay. The, the brain doesn't store any information. It doesn't process any information. It doesn't do anything any more than the virtual elf's skin does what it does. You know, it's just virtual. It's a it's a um, an evolved thing. Why do we have a brain? Because the rule set, when this virtual reality evolved, ended up evolving. Things like us. Remember, we had the Big Bang, we had the planets, we had the stars, and we have this planet and the solar system, and then we had uh, the right chemicals get together somehow and make a, a first cell. You know, a little bit of a um, um, couple of inor inorganic uh, things end up coming together and making a very simple uh, protein or a very simple uh, amino acid or something, and that eventually uh, evolved into a cell, which evolved into all this other stuff. Okay, so we have that kind of a that kind of a structure and that it's all done in a computer. That's all virtual. And it also ended up with people like us and bears and monkeys and chipmunks. And they all have brains because that's the way the rule set required that evolution to take place. So the brain is a virtual brain. It was part of the computer simulation, not the source of consciousness. Uh, remember, we talked about that. You hit the you hit the head of the virtual elf, and it causes brain damage. Not because the brain creates consciousness, and now the brain isn't able to create as much consciousness. It's because it created constraints on the consciousness playing that character. Okay, that's how that works. So the brain doesn't actually think anything. It doesn't store anything. It doesn't process anything. It is it is a virtual brain that creates those functions, okay? Just like the elf, the elf has legs. So the elf has legs, so it creates the function of running with those legs. The elf was just a blob, was just a, you know, a square block that could talk, then there wouldn't be any function there that the, that the uh, consciousness 
couldn't hit a button and say, run, Alf, run. Well, it's just a square block. It can't run. So the fact that the, that the virtual reality gives it legs means that the consciousness now can make the Elf run because that's something the Elf can do. It's, it's a constraint lifted. So the constraint of the Elf as a block is, is uh, you know, very constrained. It can't move. You give it legs or give it uh, wheels or something, and now the consciousness has another, um, you know, has, is less constrained. is another dimension that it can interact with. So it's the same thing. This, this virtual brain, by the rule set, has certain properties. It governs how all the pieces of the body communicate and interact with each other. It's the, it's the, um, you know, the, the what, the, um, the leader, the executive decision maker, or whatever. That's the function it has in this virtual computed reality. And because it has that function, then the consciousness playing it gets to play with those functions. So it makes, you know, that's the way that works. I think this, this question kind of assumed that this brain was doing all kinds of marvelous things that we don't understand and that, uh, you know, the brain's just virtual brain. And yes, it's true that if you take anything in the physical world and work it down to the, to its, the limits of its resolution, that would be very interesting because then you'd find pixels. You see, if you could get down to the resolution, you'll find pixels. You'd find that our world's made up of these little little pieces, just like if you look into your computer screen closely enough, you'd find that it's not what it seems to us when we look at it at our macro level, that it's just a bunch of little dots of light. And that's all it is. Lots of little dots of different colored light makes up the screen. But we interpret all those dots of lights the way we've learned to, in, to interpret things. So that would be a good thing to get down to the, to the pixel level of our virtual reality. And then you could look at the pixels. And then if you could somehow even get a little lower than that, which probably is an oxymoron, you could then see the distance between the pixels. But how do you, you, know, how do you uh, get a higher resolution than the resolution of your virtual reality to explain it, you see. So you're not going to be able to get down smaller than a pixel to look at the pixels when you're made of the pixels that you're trying to get smaller than. You say that's an impossibility. That's like talking with Lawrence. You see, you just can't get to there from here. You can't, you know, if you're made up of pixels, you can't get smaller than a pixel because it's what pixels make, make you up. So, you know, these are some problems that you, that are really hard to solve. How do you get to the point where you can look between the pixels? Well, you can't if you're part of that virtual reality that's made up of the pixels. You'll never get that far. So you'll never get to that resolution. You don't have to get outside of it to see that resolution. But if you're outside of it, then you're no longer, you see, you're not, you're not in that virtual reality anymore. So, yeah, I think the question had brains being a little more significant than they are. Brains are any more are no more significant than a rock or your arm or your, your finger. It's something in the virtual reality that sets constraints. So if there's a rock, then you have to walk around it if it's big enough. That sets a constraint. You can't walk through it. Well, that's all that rock does. It sets a constraint there. That may or may not matter to you. The the brain also creates certain constraints on how the virtual body can move and what the virtual body can do. How high can you jump? How fast can you think? You know, how quick is your reaction time? All of these things that define the, the virtual uh, body of the avatar are part of the rule set. 
and a virtual brain is that virtual organ, just like a virtual hand reaches out and grabs a virtual object. Well, a virtual brain is part of the electromechanical process that you know, tells that hand to go out there and the fingers to close. That's how that works. That's evolution. We evolved that way. We, d- we didn't start with hands. We evolved into a critter with hands. Monkeys got the hands first, I guess, and then we got them after that. So it's just the way the biology went. It's part of the rule set. And when that rule set gets impacted, like you get hit in the head, then there are consequences. And those consequences create different constraints. So he has to think of it as not a mystical brain in a virtual body. It's just a virtual brain in a virtual body. And the only thing that's that's doing all the thinking and analyzing and storing of information is consciousness. Either the free will awareness unit or the server is where all that's going on. The virtual is just a picture to look at, just like the elf. It's just a picture to look at. Now, if you took, if in the world of Warcraft, you took an elf, laid him on a table, and another elf had to do this, right? So you take one elf, and he lays another elf on a table and gets a knife and goes to cut open his head to see what's in there. Well, what would be in there? Well, if that was allowed by the rule set, then the programmers would have to make up something that was in there, right? They'd have, they wouldn't want them to open up and just find empty space. So they'd make a brain. So now you have to have a brain. When you open up an elf's head, you'd find a brain inside. But it would just be a virtual brain. Well, the way this reality works is dig as you as, dig as deep as you like into it, and the system will produce something for you to see. So if you cut open the head here, what's inside? Well, what does the rule set say it has to be inside? That's what you'll see. And it'll be put in your data stream so that that's what you see. And then if you go inside that brain and you'll find brain cells, you go inside those cells, you'll find a nucleus and membranes. And you go inside those, you'll find, you know, what molecules. You go inside those, you'll find atoms. You go inside those, you'll find elementary particles. You go inside those and you'll find even more elementary particles like quarks and things. And you see, you can do that. And if you get to the point where you can rip a quark apart, you'll find whatever's in there right down to the level of the resolution of the virtual reality whenever you tear something apart you're going to find something else inside that is the is the cause if you will of that part because it's all part of the the rule set it stops when you when you hit the resolution limit so that's you know the idea that you're not going to be able to rip a quark apart well you know if you could we don't know whether that's possible or not but if you could sure enough the system will show you something that's in there. You won't just look inside a quark and see a black hole. You'll see something that supports that quark being the way it is because the system is built up out of the logical inferences from the rule set. And we only have a tiny subset of that rule set that we understand now as our science. So I think, um, you know, and maybe they, maybe they created a reality that uh, doesn't get down to smaller particles in the quark. It's possible, but, that's probably lazy because, you know, they've got a whole lot more uh, resolution yet to go that's smaller than, than that. So that, that's, the, you know, I, I answered the question by saying the brain really is just a virtual brain. doesn't do anything. All the things that people think the brain does are things that consciousness does. The brain is what creates the constraints that, that limit consciousness of what it can do. How much can it think? You know, how... Uh, 
you know, how many thoughts can he keep in his head at once? All those things are the consciousness, and it's limited by the rule set that creates the virtual brain through evolution. Okay, Tom, uh, the next questions are on the dream reality. Um, one from Joe, our physicist, and a couple from your MBT forum users. And Lawrence also, we'll follow that. Lawrence also has a question on the afterlife and the, con and the larger consciousness system that has to do with dream reality. So I'll read you these three questions first, and then maybe, Lawrence, if you don't answer, some of the things that he has in here. Maybe he can ask his questions. Okay. So the first one from Joe, our physicist, some dreams appear to be metaphors for things that we have not resolved in our working lives, in our waking lives. Conscious participation in some dreams presents significant opportunities for growth and evolution. Perhaps some out-of-body experiences may be incorrectly described by some as dreams. Is there a spectrum of dream states? We all spend a significant fraction of our PMR lives in dream states, and even if it appears that many animals also experience the dream state. Could you please comment on the role of dreams in our lives and their significance in the context of presenting opportunities to improve the quality of consciousness? Yeah, well, he's got it right. It's just the way it works. Uh, we, as as chunks of consciousness, and our mission is to grow up through our choices, which means through our experiences, we get to experience in multiple virtual realities. So we have this one we call our physical universe, and here we are experiencing in, in this one, but we also have a dream reality that uh, we experience in, just the same. And it's no different. It's just a different virtual reality, and we get a different data stream. So we're getting this physical matter reality universe data stream. And here we are interacting, uh, talking, uh, you know, over the internet together in this physical reality. So that's functions going on here. But when we dream, we let that data stream go and we get another data stream, but we do the same thing. What do we do? We make choices, we interact and we grow the quality of our consciousness based on those choices and those interactions. So we're just doing the same thing in different virtual realities. So why have two? Why not just have the one? Well, the dream virtual reality allows us to do things very dramatically that we wouldn't want to have to experience here because here there's lots of feedback. Here there's continuity. Here you don't just jump into situations and jump out. Here there's a, there's a lot of consequences. You see, that's the point of this physical reality is to give us consequences, give us feedback. Well, that's good, but you know, if what you really want to know is how would I react if I were in a, you know, a six story building and realized that it was on fire and that most of the people didn't know that it was on fire, would I run out to save myself or would I go try to tell as many people as I could? Or what would I do? What are the choices? Well, there's a lot of consequences to that doing it in this reality, you see. But in a dream reality, you can just be thrown into that situation. Pop, there you are. You're in the building. Oh, no, there's a fire. What am I going to do? And you have to make choices. But those choices are free will choices that you make, and they can help you grow or, or not grow. You know, you can evolve or de-evolve based on them. So it's the same thing. But now you get these dramatic 
situation. So there I am. Oh, no, a six-headed monster with teeth. He's going to eat me. What do I do? You know, do I try to make friends? Do I run away? Do I fight? Do I draw my gun? You know, what, how do I react to this? Well, you wouldn't want to do that here, you see, because that doesn't happen here. So the dream reality gives us a whole nother breadth of experience that we can have. And often it does help us work through things that we're working through in this physical reality. You know, that reality uh, you know, is kind of our main reality. We spend most of our time here working. And the dream reality can put us into little vignettes and stories and situations where we have to work out issues that we're going to use in this reality, help us grow. So, yes, they are connected in that sense, but it's all, it's all the same thing. You know, the, uh, as you say, Joe was the, was the person asked that. Uh, it's a, is that right, Joe? Yes. It's a, yes, Joe, that's true. You know, we, we work all day and we work all night. And our job is to grow up, make choices and learn from those choices. And we do that here. We do that in the dream reality. We do that when we're out of body. We do that lucid dreaming. Um, everywhere we go, you know, it, it's work, work, work. Uh, we have choices to make and we can evolve or de-evolve by the quality of those choices. So that's kind of the way it works. When you do die, you get in another virtual reality. When you leave this physical, this what we call physical matter reality, virtual reality, you'll end up being in a different virtual reality and you'll make choices there. And the choices you make there will, you know, have an effect. It's the that's the same way. All the out of body, you'll make choices there. So all of the different reality frames you connect to are just different data streams. We want to we want to make them like countries of the world. You know, oh here's the out of body reality, and that's a boundary. And over here's the lucid dreaming reality, and over here's the dreaming reality. And they're all different places, someplace, and but they all have boundaries, and they're all separate. It's not like that. You are connected to the server. The server is the larger consciousness system. The larger consciousness system can serve you up a data stream that gives you opportunities to make choices. Sometimes those choices are in this physical reality, and sometimes those choices are when you're out of body, and sometimes they're when you're lucid dreaming or just regular dreaming. And you, you, it's just different ways, different data streams and different ways that the larger consciousness system can provide you with experience and the opportunity to make choices. So it, it does so. And you can disconnect and reconnect to these once you learn how, you know, pretty much at will. You can go get data from the database or, you know, see other places, go other places, but you're just disconnecting from one data stream, connecting to another, or you can connect to two or three data streams at the same time. And now you're kind of time sharing your, your awareness in, in three different reality frames. So we have to just look at it as, as different data streams from the larger consciousness system. So the larger consciousness system is not only the server for this reality, but it's the server for all the realities. It's the system. It's the larger system. So it is the server for all the different VRs everywhere. Okay. Um, a question from Brian from the MBT forum. Um, some of this you may have already answered, but... Let me read this through. In comparison to PMR, or physical matter reality, the dream reality frame appears to be non-evolved, scenes created for us on the fly and with no continuity. Recently on the forum, there's been a lot of worthwhile discussion about the origins of the dream reality frame and how it functions as this non-continuous virtual reality. 
It is our hope that you can clear up some of the speculation about our theories. In particular, Ted proposes two interesting theories in regards to this. One, the dream reality frame is actually a subset and very much connected to the PMR. And two, other than the aspect where each of us subjectively brings in our own expectations and beliefs into the dream reality frame, this virtual reality is very much its only separate reality frame. Can you add or comment as to how the dream reality frame or any of the other non-evolved, non-continuous interactive virtual realities were created by the larger cons consciousness system? And how they function differently from PMR in regards to how the dream scenes are rendered by the big computer and uh, the VRRE. Okay. Um, I think part of the problem when you talk about is it separate, you see, now separate is a way of thinking here in this physical reality. We think of things being separate. This is here, this is over there, you know. Uh, things have space between them. Well, in consciousness, there is no space. Space is a calculation in this virtual reality. So we have to let space go. What does separate mean if there is no space? Well, separate doesn't mean anything if there is no space, you see. So we're using, we're using uh, 3D words to try to describe something that isn't 3D, which is why we get confused and we confuse ourselves. Rather think of it like this. We are uh, now maybe... Uh, you know, three or 400 years ahead of where, of where we are in virtual realities. And now we can go to a virtual reality emporium and sit down and there's multiple virtual realities that we can do. There's this virtual reality we can put on and that's just like this physical matter universe. It's, it's very buttoned down. There's consequences to everything. It's long-term. Everything you do now streams into what happens next. And it's a kind of a continuous, uh, you know, uh, game with a very tight rule set. And then there's this other virtual reality that, uh, you know, you just make up, you know, you, you, you get these uh, kind of random stories or things that just happen. Uh, sometimes they're trivial. Sometimes they're, they're not. And, um, you know, it doesn't, like he says, it, it just starts and stops and ends and, and uh, it doesn't seem to have much continuity or make a lot of sense sometimes. But it seems to be tied into what you're experiencing here because the little vignettes and, and you know, you get in the burning house because you're trying to, you're working on here, making decisions about, um, you know, yourself importance as opposed to other people. And that's something you're working on. So you get this little thing about your inner burning building to help make you make decisions. That's a real dramatic instance of what do you do? You see, it's not the subtle kind of gray area, hard thing that we've got here to deal with. It's just a real stark uh, choice to make. Whereas we can confuse ourselves with all the subtleties of the choices we have in this physical reality. So it gives you some practice doing that. So they're all related. Now think of it that as you go to this reality, you don't have to just stay in one. You can go strap yourself onto the platform, put the helmet over your head, all the pressure points on you so you can feel touch and motion and, and the little smell machine that gives you odors and taste and all this stuff is done. It's a really good virtual reality. And um, so you're in there for a while. You're doing the, the slogging through the high, you know, the, um, I should say high, um, yeah, the high, high uh, resolution um, complex rule set. 
kind of a virtual reality. And then, just so you don't get bored, you know, every once in a while, every uh, what, every sixteen or yeah, every sixteen hours, you get eight hours worth of realities where they on and off just jump around and let you practice things that you need to know. And then sometimes you go off on a reality where you get to uh, you get to be the the author of the of the action. You go out of body. You see, so all these were possible for you, and they found out through a lot of study that about 16 hours in this physical reality is about enough. And then uh, these little vignettes, if they just ran all the time, you'd get you'd get worn out by them. You know, they they'd uh, you'd be exhausted. So they come like every 90 minutes, you get you know 15 or 20 minutes of those, and and uh, and then you. Uh, you don't get any more. You rest. You just let your, your body rest, let, let your adrenaline kind of ease off after the six-headed monster. And then sometimes you have them where you can, you can lead the action yourself. You're, you're lucid dreaming or you're out of body, and you kind of get to make them up. And as you make them up, the story kind of forms around you, and you run into interesting people and interesting You're still making decisions or whatever. So we have these three modes. And uh, you just go in there and sit down, and, and they run these, these things on you. And you'd say, well, are they all separate? You know, you know, they, they in different boxes. Well, it's all coming out of the same server. It's all being played over the same helmet and the same headset and the same module that you're in to create the virtual reality. Is this different virtual realities that you're getting sent different data streams? And yes, they connect in a way because you're still just one you. You're still one individuated unit of consciousness and you're learning lessons. So you kind of have the same choices and lessons in all of them. So when you're out of body, you meet somebody and that they give you information or, or something else and you make choices of what do you do and how do you react? And, and, uh, you know, there may, maybe you meet a monster there, or maybe you have uh, friends there or whatever, so, but you're making choices, you're interacting, you're giving and taking, and it's the same all over. So it's just a nice mix that gives you the opportunity to grow up with a lot of different virtual realities, giving you different things. So to say, well, they're separate. Well, what's that mean? What's separate mean? Does that mean they have separate servers? Well, there is only one big system, right? And that's the larger conscious system. All right. There's maybe a, an, a, uh, a subset of that that's called the big computer, and it's just the server for this physical reality. But that's just a subset. So within, this big com- within, within the, the uh, larger conscious system, you may have subsets that do things like that, or you may just have one master server that you know you know that creates them all is it possible to have one server run world of warcraft and the sims both at the same time sure you just need a big enough fast enough server you can run both of them at the same time so i'd say don't worry about trying to slice and dice it into you know how separate they are what the boundaries are between them that sort of thing just see it as all one thing it's the larger consciousness system giving us opportunities to make decisions and grow up because that's what we do as consciousness. That's our role. That's our function. So there's, you know, it works the way it works. The physical body needs a certain amount of downtime to rest. That's the rule set. The rule set that created this virtual reality created a, our physical body and our physical body needs downtime. It needs rest for all the byproducts, the toxic byproducts of, of, uh, you know, physical processes of our metabolism have to be dealt with. You know, we need some rest time. Uh, also, rest is good because when we go to sleep, it's almost like rebooting. 
How many times have you said, well, I'm just going to go to sleep now. I'm going to wake up. I'll see it from a new perspective. Well, that's like saying I just have to reboot. You know, I need a little downtime. When I come back, I'll see things differently. You know, I'll, I'll reload all my programs and I'll look at it with a fresh, fresh viewpoint. That's helpful too. So we have, we have restraints from the, from the rule set. It says our, our, uh, our avatar needs some downtime because that's the way that evolved in that simulation. We have opportunities during that downtime to make decisions elsewhere. So we do. And then we might, while we're awake in this uh, reality, decide in physical matter reality, decide to sit down and meditate. And we can maybe do that. And that'll put us in a different reality frame because it detaches us. We detach from the physical input. When you're meditating, you get to that meditation state where you're not paying attention to any of this physical reality. All right, you've just let that data set go. Or you could say you're just not processing it. Well, okay, now you're in a different reality. You're not in this physical reality anymore. Now you're in this meditation state. It doesn't have, you know, chairs and houses and stuff in it. It's a different state. So that's sort of like then you can go into the out-of-body state. Well, that's a different reality. So now you can work some of those realities and decisions into this physical reality. So they're all just different ways that we can grow up that we have access to by virtue of, of being attached to an avatar here. So just think of a system as wanting to help us evolve, and it gives us all these tools to work with. And sometimes we can parallel process. Sometimes you can be in this reality system talking to someone and at the same time in a different reality system healing them. You see, so now you're parallel processing. You get some of this data stream, some of that data stream, and you're, you're, you're doing it both at the same time. But we get confused easily, so we generally don't like to parallel process our data streams. We do them one at a time. So when we go out of body, well, we let the physical one go. We dream, well, we let the physical one go, and, and uh, we do others. So don't break it up. Don't slice it and dice it and try to, try to uh, pin it down with too many metaphors. All we can do is make up metaphors that describe function. Now, we experience the functions. We experience the dreaming. We experience the physical reality. We experience the out-of-body. So we have all these functions we experience, and now we try to make up a structure to explain the functions. Don't constrain that structure you know, any more than you have to. And you don't really have to constrain it at all. You don't have to make it come from a place. And this is different. So it must come from a different place. There really are no places. It's just the larger consciousness system giving us tool set that we can use to grow up. And uh, basically, we're on all the time. There isn't an off switch for this. You know, you work while you're awake. You work while you're meditating. You work while you're out of body. You work when you're asleep. All the time, you're making choices. And you don't necessarily remember it. Sometimes you have dreams you don't remember. It doesn't mean you weren't making choices. It means you just didn't keep them in this memory. And you can change that just by, you know, working with it, with your dreams. People can, you know, you can read, Google it, and people will tell you some techniques of how you can make your dreams more memorable, more vivid, so that you do remember them. Doesn't mean you weren't making choices. Doesn't. Some people say, I never dream. Well, everybody dreams. They just don't remember them. They don't bring them back and, and put them in this, this this part of their memory. They keep the two memories, but it doesn't mean they aren't growing and learning from them. They're having experiences. They're making choices, and they're learning from them. They just don't they just aren't aware of it here. So, 
Yeah, I'd say you're overthinking overthinking the problem there and uh, trying to put too many constraints that are unnecessary in describing the function because the best we can ever accomplish is to use good metaphors to describe a function and don't make your metaphors any more restrictive than necessary. Okay, Tom, the next question is also from an MBT forum user. It's Dave, and he's been analyzing and studying dreams for over 40 years. He really just wanted you to speak more about your thoughts and theories on dreams, which you've done in this question. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you've answered and expounded on that. Um, it seems to him, however, that the dream puzzle is far from being complete from all of his experiences and and analysis, and I think that's probably um, a good analysis. There's there's so much more to to learn. Um, so, Dave, thank you for your question. I hope that uh, Tom's previous answer answered all of that for you. Uh, Lawrence, if you would like to answer, ask rather your questions on the afterlife that have to do with the dream reality, please go ahead. All right, sure. Hey, Tom. Um, hey, Lawrence. I was wondering um, when when we pass from this reality frame and then we go to the to the afterlife reality frame, um, mm -hmm. is, is the transition that that transition that was specially made uh, for people passing over, is that transition similar to the dream state? So, for instance, you know, like when we most of the time, like when I'm dreaming, I I don't realize that I'm dreaming until I wake up and it's just like I'm immersed into the dream of whatever mm -hmm. it is. But I notice myself, you know, I'm making decisions and everything, but the dream got me fooled, like totally. Like it's seen. <clears throat> Once I wake up, I know that it's a that it was a dream and that I'm right. now in more transition. But while I'm in it, it's like I still have my memories because sometimes when in the dream I'm explaining like stuff about consciousness and like stuff that I'm learning. Sure. You know, uh, it's because you're the same consciousness, you know, you're the same consciousness in the dream in that reality as you are in the physical reality. So you have all the same memory, but it's a little different. It's somewhere in between like a dream state. It's not quite as, uh, as jumpy and random as a dream state. Because, you know, you can be in a dream and you can be doing anything and then flash or in something totally different. You know, it, uh, it can change dramatically sometimes. And in, in the uh, virtual reality that, that uh, you call afterlife, it's kind of the virtual reality we wake up in after we, we die in this physical reality. Uh, it's, it's not as mercurial, which means as jumpy. You know, it doesn't jump around as much as dreaming does. It's more stable than that. But it's not as solid and doesn't have as strong a rule set as this does. It's not like it's entirely physical. Just like the dream, it seems physical when you're in it. You know, there are people and places to go and buildings and chairs to sit in. And it seems very physical. But you notice, just like a dream, it tends to uh, be very light and airy, you know, in, the, in, the, in its physicalness. You can turn around. You know, you, you can turn around and something's different there. You know, you you may be in this place and you walked into a building and then when you walk out, it's different. It's like now you're at the seashore or something. You know, so things things can change there, but it's it's not as changeable as dreams. It's somewhere in between the two. But things kind of come and go as you need them. So when you first get there 
and you're a little stressed about the transition and what's going on and where am I and what's help going on, there's a lot of, it's busier then. It seems to be very busy and there's a lot of people around and milling and, you know, you're told to go stand in this line or go over here, talk to that person or somebody chats with you. And basically what they're doing is just uh, giving you a lot of humma, humma, humma. So you will relax and let things go. You see, they're, they're just stringing you along, letting some time go by so that you can just kind of let your, your attachment to the stuff you just left go. And they're very reassuring. Everything's be all right. Yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, we were, you know, glad you're here, all that sort of thing. Make you feel at home, you know, introduce you to some of your relatives, whatever, whatever relaxes you. So it's kind of busy at first. And then after that, it gets less busy. And then pretty soon there's not all that many people around. And then you may, you may have, uh, you know, you find yourself then with, with other entities in there talking to you about your next your next incarnation and what would you like to do and, and what do you feel like you most need to learn or what sort of experiences do you feel like you'd like to have? And you'll talk to them and they'll point things out and they'll say, well, you know, maybe you, you should do this or you really need to work on that. And you can agree, you can argue with them and you can say, no, I don't want to do anything. You know, I'm just out of here. I, I'm done. That last time was just a real pain. You know, I don't want to do that anymore. So um, they'll let you go. But what happens is you get bored. You see, it's not so physical as this. It's more like a dream. Well, if you were just in a dream and it just, you know, was boring, nothing was happening. Pretty soon, you you know, it's like you need to go somewhere else. You need to do something. So even the people who say, no, I don't want to go back, they get bored and they say, okay, what's next? You know, let's let's work on that. So then you can do things. It depends on how the level you are. Uh, if you're a little uh, more evolved, you tend to do a life's review. You look at what you've done, mistakes you've made, kind of get up in your mind what you need to work on and how you need to work on it and get those things done. And then pop, you go back, you find an avatar that's kind of picked out as being suitable for the things you want to do. And there you go. The system usually picks that avatar out for you. You don't get involved in the mechanics of that. It's just, you kind of, say what it is you'd like and what you think would be good. And you kind of get a, an avatar and there you are, you know, somebody's, somebody's birthing you and slapping you on the butt and you start all over having to figure out, you know, what ends up. Right. So that's kind of the way it is, but it's not, it's not really like, well, when you're in that afterlife, you, you know, you get bored, you can get on the bus and take a, a ride downtown and shoot some pool and, you know, hang out with the guys it's not all that, you know, it, it gets, it starts out being social, but then it narrows down pretty quickly to, to you and maybe a few, and then maybe just you. And now you're on your own and they want to, and, and you always have somebody say, well, you're ready to, you ready to go on. You're ready to get back in the game. And eventually you'll say yes, because otherwise there's no, you know, you're just there. So it's it not, so it's more dreamlike than this reality, but it's not as, as jumpy around as a dream. Right. Is this is it the same me that's making a choice in my dream state? So like in that state, is it can I still talk to myself like, oh, this isn't right? Or, you know, yes, can- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You have an awareness, you have free will and you can make choices. You can talk to yourself. You can think and assess and weigh. And uh, you are still, uh, you know, you, you still have that kind of connection with your consciousness, if you will. So here you are, consciousness. And you, you're done with this one. Let's say you get plugged in now to the transition state. 
and the transition state, then you kind of decide what you want to do next. And then you get plugged back into the physical matter reality state. So you as this consciousness, you just keep right on trucking. So you're just moving from this virtual reality to that virtual reality back to the, you know, the first virtual reality. But you need a transition because otherwise it would be kind of strange that that suddenly you're, you're, you're an old man, you know, with, with cancer and the next you're a baby. You see, you, you need a little transition there to kind of focus on what you're going to do. So, okay. the, so you just go to another virtual reality for a while, do a little transition, and then you go back. So all you're doing, the consciousness itself isn't doing anything. It's just there. It's just changing data streams. So the server serving at physical matter data stream, oh, you died, got run over by bus. All right, now we better start serving you, uh, you know, the transition data stream. All right, now we're ready to serve you the physical matter reality data stream again. But when you get that physical matter reality data stream a second time, now you're an infant. Right. So it's, then you start over. Right. Is it is this sort of like um like if like let's say that 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 you know that 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 um you're going to enter this transition reality frame once you pass, and mm -hmm. so like let's say when that when that happens. Will you yourself, like you being you yourself, when you're there, know it, like have it not like, oh, all right, I'm here. I know what to, you know, like I know. What yes, to you can. And not only that, if, if that's your case, the transition is really simple. You know where you are, you know, it's a transition. And right away you go to, well, let's figure out what I'm going to do next. You don't have to meet and greet. You don't have to stand in line. You don't need all that relaxing stuff. You don't have to be convinced that you need to have another cycle. Um, you just, you know, you're in and out. So it's like, you don't, you know, you go, you go straight to where you need to go to get the next, the next experience. If you're, if you're good with that. Now you may want to spend some time reviewing the old one because there's lessons to be learned there, you know, and you can review the old experience and you can see things because sometimes your experience will surprise you. You know, sometimes you don't think that you were the way you were because you just don't see it yourself and having that pointed out to you can be helpful. So you go right to that process where now you're in processing to your next experience packet. You don't need the rest of the fluff and stuff. So yeah, the, the amount of, the amount of fluffy stuff you need just depends on how much it, of that it takes you to get refocused. If you already know what you're doing, then you don't need all that. You just start right into the next thing. Can you pick? Well, it'll be continuous for you. It's continuous. You kind of you die here. Well, you're a consciousness, or you are aware, and then oh well, you're aware someplace else. So it's not like you have this uh, you know an hour of darkness to wait between them or anything. You just you're in one virtual you know one reality to the other. One data stream stops, the other data stream starts up. If you're if you're very like let's say like for me like I'm very attached to my music and I know that. You know, like I'm working on it and I'm working on like becoming something special and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I have like really good material. So let's just say that, you know, like if you really have something that, that you personally like tell yourself like this, I want to do this and I don't I don't want to stop, not even this lifetime. And so like when you're in the transition state, can you could, could one say like, for instance, myself say like, like I want to continue doing music. I want to because I want to, you know, finish doing this. So like I want my priorities just like this lifetime is to do yes. music. Oh, yeah, wow. you, can, you can do that because what happens is what you're saying, you see, is not just I like to do it because it's fun, but you're saying I get a lot out of this music. It helps me grow. You know, I, I have a there's a dimension of me that grows and, and, and uh, evolves out of my connection with music. So it's a good tool for me. 
So music is a tool that, that I can use to, to grow with. It, it makes my world bigger. And that's true, you see. So then why wouldn't music be a good tool the next time? You say, I like this tool. It's working for me. I want to keep with it. All right. So you would probably be put in a situation where you may come in with a, an interest in music. You know, you'd be one of these people who learns to play the piano at five years old, you know, just because you want to. So you come in with this interest in music that, um, you know, that'd just be the way it would be because you'd have a, a proclivity toward that. Right. Why would it, why is it so hard then to remember your past life? Cause I'm always thinking like that I'm going to one day figure it out. Cause it's, it's always on my mind. Like, who was I? Like, I, I know that I was somebody, but I just don't know who. And it's just like, I, you know, I know that you said like when we, when we pass on, like our memories fade away. And, um, yeah. you know, they have some some research that I think that Dr. Ian Stevenson, I think that's his name. And he did some research with like certain kids who they come back to this reality and they know exactly like who they were. And they say like I was a pilot. Right. And, uh, right. You can. In general, people just lose it and they don't uh, they don't remember that the, the, the past life you just had fades like a dream. Just yeah. kind of goes away. And the, there's a reason for that. You don't want to carry a lot of baggage with you. And you don't want to carry all the old things that had you trapped. You know, you want to let all that go. And you have to start over with learning, you know, how to interpret the data. You start over because everything needs to be a fresh start. You'd say, yeah, but, you know, it'd be nice if I could still read music, you know, or I could still do this. I wouldn't have to learn these things. Or it'd be nice if I could walk. Well, you're in an infant's body. You, you'll learn to walk. You know, you can go through that process. It's part of your, part of your learning process of putting it all together. So there's reasons why you don't want all that baggage in general. Now, why do some people have them? Well, could be several reasons. One, they may have had a very strong attachment to that, to where it sticks with them. You know, sometimes you've had a dream, and it may be a dream you had 10 years ago, but you still remember it. It was still, you know, you can look back and say, yeah, I remember that dream. Yeah, that was a powerful dream. I still remember it, you see. And other dreams... 30 seconds after you wake up, evaporate, they're gone. So it's the same way. If there's something you're really strongly attached to, you may bring that through with you. If you're most people, that's not the case. Most people, it was just life and things happen. And mostly, mostly your dreams disappear quickly within minutes. They're gone. If you don't write them down or you don't talk about them or you don't start working with them to bring them into this reality, by doing something. If you talk about them, that kind of keeps them around and you can get them into this reality. If you write them down, you can remember it. But if you don't do any of that stuff, they just evaporate. So that's kind of the way it is when you cross over. Most of your stuff just evaporates because it's just baggage. You don't, you don't need all that. But if there's something you're strongly attached to, you can might carry that, you might carry that forward. Something you can use. Now, if what you were attached to was your, you know, your, your child or your, your lover or, you know, your mom and dad or something like that, that probably won't last for a long time because it's no longer that attachment's not really functional so much in the next reality. Whereas a thing about music could be real functional. So that would be easier to bring with you. Now, knowing that you were a, an airplane pilot in World War I, well, that may be something you just was really a, an amazing thing. Um, maybe you got shot down, which made it a very big impression on you, you know, whereas if you didn't get shot down, you might not have remembered it. 
But because you got shut down and you remember those terrifying minutes as you, you know, as you fell out of the air, that may make such an impression on you that you bring that, you know, that you bring that with you. Or it may be that you're just an example to other people that reality is larger than they think, that reality is more than this physical. So here you are and you're five years old and you can explain all the details about this plane you flew and, you know, who you were and your name and all this kind of stuff. And maybe you're just, you just keep that memory because that helps other people get a bigger picture. So it may just be a, you know, something you're, you're, you're sent in with as a kind of plant the seed for other people may not really mean that much to you, but you're just carrying that seed. So there could be lots of reasons why that happens, but typically it doesn't. But your thing with music, that's likely. You know, look at some of the guys who were the who were the really big giants in music. They came in musical, right? They were they were performing, they were learning, they were they were good at their instruments almost as toddlers. You know, they were interested from birth almost. Well, that's probably because they'd been doing that for a while. It probably didn't just come up as a random draw. Right. So, wow, thank you so much. That was great. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, Tom, there were a couple of questions that uh, Pally had left over from previous times that didn't get to be answered. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most useful way to perceive one's own ego to grow up? Um, for example, ignore it and just focus on fears to see it as an enemy or as a useful helper or even as a tool to reach enlightenment, which gives us the opportunity to notice some areas where improvement may be needed. Okay, right. uh, let me answer that one first. I think the best way to find your ego is to look for feelings of negativity. Look for dissatisfaction, unhappiness, anger, um, yes, fear, but, um, you know, what else can I say? Anxiety, that kind of thing. Upset. Whenever you're having these kind of feelings that are negative, because most people have feelings like that all the time. You know, it's not like a rare thing. Like they have to go for months, you know, to have a feeling of being upset or angry or, or uh, whatever. Most of those you'll find are attached to a fear. So use that. That's an, that's an ego expression of the, I'm upset. Oh, how dare you do that to me? You know, uh, how dare you this or that? Or why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? Or angry at yourself maybe too. But it's, it's your ego is finding that things aren't working out the way you want, so it gets upset. And that ego is attached to a fear. So take a negative, the negative things we find in our life, the things that are not pleasant, that are kind of unhappy stuff, and find out why do I choose to feel that? Because you first take responsibility for what you feel. If you're angry, don't say so-and-so made me angry realize that I choose to be angry. So-and-so did what they did, and I choose to react to that with anger. Why did I choose anger? Why didn't I choose something else? Well, that'll take you back to a fear. You, cho you chose anger because of a fear that you have. It's resonating with some fear. So I'd say use your, use your um, ego your ego will get you in trouble and make you feel bad and negative things. And then you can be aware of that, trace it back to the fear, then try to get rid of the fear. 
So ego is the way you are, and you can use it as a tool to find your fears. That would kind of my answer to that. Okay, and he goes on to ask also, um, from what I can tell, people with depression cannot stop thinking about their suffering. Can it be that depression will disappear if we manage to stop using the intellect and learn to mentally relax? Um, could you share how the usage of intellect in you as you were gradually dropping your ego, how it changed? Sure, um, it's true. Depression is generally, uh, you know, it's, it's negativity feeding on itself. So it's a, it's an, you get in a downward spiral. If you, something happens that upsets you and bothers you, then you think about it. And the more you think about it, the less friendly and receptive you are because you're mulling over this terrible thing that happened to you. So the less friendly and outgoing and open and connecting with people you are, well, the more likely something's going to happen to you that isn't very friendly, you see. So you just, you get in a cycle that feeds on itself and it starts to turn into a self-pity party in the sense that, oh, look what happened to me. This stuff always happens to me and I'm no good or I don't have this. Most depression is because you don't like yourself, not because you don't like somebody else. That's anger. When you don't like yourself, that's depression. So people get into this negative thing, and the more they think negative about themselves, the more sullen and unresponsive they get, which means they don't get the feedback that's cheerful and happy and friendly. So they get more depressed, and it just keeps, as a downward spiral, it gets worse and worse and worse. So that is, that's the way it goes. But it starts with ego, and ego starts with fear. So you have fear creates ego and also creates beliefs, and the beliefs and the ego create problems. And if you focus on the problems and ignore the stuff that's, that's good and not a problem, you end up being unhappy and difficult. And then other people try to move away from you because they don't like to hang out with unhappy, difficult people, which then makes you realize that nobody likes you and you're not very likable, which makes you more depressed about yourself. And it just you know, goes into a, a tailspin. That's the problem. And if you can get out of that, thinking about yourself. It's all about me. See, depression, everything's about you. Somebody comes up and says something to you. Oh, look what a nice day it is today. Well, that turns into being about you. Oh yeah, nice day. Yeah. Well, it's nice for some people, but it's not nice for me. You know, I never enjoy my day. You know, if I stayed out in the day, I'd just get sunburned and there's, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go with these other, and you just have all this negative, you know, stuff about, it's all about you and your unhappy misery. So, yes, it's a problem. If you can fix that, if you can get that intellect off that subject of how miserable you are and the self-pity and how you're suffering, then you can maybe climb out of that depression. Okay, Tom, from another MBT forum user, Terry, um, several fighter pilots flying at the edge of the uh, troposphere around 70,000 feet reported on a frightening feeling of detachment. The reported feelings varied from peaceful to totally euphoric, and the experiences were labeled as the break-off phenomenon. Out of 137 high-altitude pilots that were questioned, one-third has this experience. 
this phenomenon is not related to lack of oxygen since all the pilots were in pressurized environments. Um, my questions are, how does gravity or lack of gravity affect consciousness? Is gravity only a phenomenon related to the PMR rule set? Is it in fact gravity that's at work here? Um, I do remember, I want to comment that uh, Dr. Edward Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, founder of IONS, who was an astronaut on the Apollo 14 mission, experienced something similar to this. It was more of a spiritual feeling. Um, but can you comment on this uh, question from Terry? Sure. I'd say gravity has nothing to do with it. You know, gravity is a physical thing. It's part of the rule set. It's part of the fundamental things that are given that makes this uh, makes that plasma you know do do what it does to form this reality. So gravity is is a physical thing. Has only to do with the the rule set in this physical reality, and has nothing to do with consciousness, which exists in a totally separate reality. So what is going on, I believe, and why Edgar Mitchell and others kind of get have this spiritual experience, this wow, you know, this expansive kind of feeling is perspective. You know, from 70,000 feet, you have a heck of a view. You know, you get a, a lot of perspective. When you're that high, you probably just see stars. You're outside most of the atmosphere, and instead of uh, – you know, instead of looking up and getting light scattered in the atmosphere, which is what gives us the, you know, the blue sky and the daylight, you know, it's just uh, suddenly you are, it's day beneath you and night above you. And you see stars like you probably have never seen before in the sense that it's just really black up there. There's no, you know, it's just thousand more stars than you remember ever seeing from down on the planet. Besides you look down, you can see the whole planet. Instead of being in your own little private world, you know, struggling with your own little details, suddenly you have this expansive sense of belonging to something much bigger and to something being much bigger than you. Whereas if you're in your office sitting at your desk fighting with the person in the desk next door, it's all very local and all, you know, kind of, you know, you're all wound up with it with your ego. But I think it's just perspective. When you get to that kind of altitude, and you can look down on the earth and see it as that small blue ball, you know, like Mitchell did. It just gives you a whole new perspective about yourself and what you're a part of that you just don't get when you're when you're down, uh, you know, you know, dealing with the alligators in the swamp. You know, now you're way up above the swamp, and suddenly it's it's a different kind of animal. And I think it's just that it's a it's a perspective, and it is a spiritual experience because people realize that they're just a small piece of a, of a much bigger thing. Whereas when you're down there sitting at your desk arguing with the guy next to you, you're a, you're a very uh, you know, contentious part of a very small thing. So it gets you up above all that smallness and that contention. And I think people just see that and it's an, oh, wow. I it doesn't have anything to do with gravity or altitude. It's not a physical process. It's not gravity affects your, affects your brain. Of course, again, it's just a virtual brain, right? Brain doesn't do anything. You know, it's a virtual brain. It's all computed. Gravity is just, is just an equation in the computer. It's just part of the rule set. It doesn't affect your virtual brain. And besides your virtual brain doesn't have anything to do with your consciousness. So those ideas have to do with, with kind of a materialistic viewpoint, just perspective.
I mean, people okay. get the same thing when they stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look over, right? They see the same, they get the same kind of thing when you uh, go up in the Space Needle and look over a city. That's why people like to climb up mountains so they can look at the view because the view has some kind of, wow, look at that. Because suddenly you see yourself as part of a bigger picture. So I think that's what it is, except it's, it's that on steroids because now your view is from 70,000 feet, not 7,000 feet. And that makes a big difference. All right. Thank you. Um, another question from the MBT forum from Birgitta. Uh, she is an expressive arts therapist. Her question is on the feeling of fear. I used to think that feeling of fear was a way we navigated in the world, sort of the tool set, sensing, feeling, thinking. Um, like I sense pain, but I do not have it to stay in pain. I think, but I don't have to believe in my thoughts. I fear, but I can act courageously. If you meet an entity that has high entropy, how do you know whether to step back or to proceed? Do you just reg register and decide with no feelings involved? Um, I'm used to dealing with fear. I'm used to working with that as expressive arts. But I can see that what you talk about perhaps has another dimension. Can you comment on that? I'm not sure I understood the question, but I think she's talking about not her own fear, but the fear that she finds in her patients and the people she's doing art therapy for. Is that correct? You can help me in how I, you read that. Yeah. Um, or I'm did not it sure. back and forth there? It was kind of her fear for a while, then it was in her patients and I'm not sure. Well, I she's thinking that um, she used to think that feeling fear was just a way to navigate through this world. Um, and she's really kind of asking, how do you know what to do when you meet an entropy that has uh, an entity? Sorry, that has high entropy. Um, do you do you step back? How do you how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? in a way that is not fearful, okay. I think. Okay. okay, I get that now. If that's the case, then what she's confusing is fear and, well, we say rationality. You know, fear is never rational. And some people will say, oh, yeah, it is. Fear is rational. You know, if you, if you meet a bear in the woods, you know, it's, it's rational to be afraid. Well, no, fear is never is never helpful. Let me put it that way. It's never a rational response to a problem. If you meet a bear in the woods and you're fearful, you're more likely to be hurt by that bear than if you're not. If you're not fearful, you will think, you'll use your head, you'll reach for your pepper spray, you'll back up, uh, you will, you know, keep eye contact or avoid eye contact, whatever they tell you to do. There's things that you can do that will raise the probability of your survival of that. If you're fearful, then you're just, you're lost because then you'll, what you'll do is turn around and run. And then of course the bear sees something running and he's going to chase it just like a dog. So then you're in big trouble. So fear is not the point. It's not that you see a bear, you should be afraid. No, you see a bear, you need not to be afraid. You need to use your heads. You need to be cool and calm and think about what you're doing and how you're going to do it. And how can you raise your probability of surviving the encounter? Fear is non-functional. It doesn't help. So a lot of people kind of depend on their fear. Oh, I'm afraid of whatever. 
So I stay away from, you know, I'm afraid of what? I'm afraid of being stung by a bee because I'm allergic to it. So I don't go around bees. That's not because of fear. You don't go around bees because you're not stupid. If you are, you know, if you will die from a bee sting because you're severely allergic, then not going around bees isn't a fear reaction. It's a reaction of being rational. It's an, you know, it's a rational reaction. It's a, it's a, it's a decision that makes sense. So, you know, don't go out in the woods because there's bears in the woods. Well, you know, that's, if there's a lot of, if there's been a, a grizzly bears in the woods that have been, been violent and, uh, you know, been after people, then don't go in the woods. It isn't because you're afraid. It's because you're not dumb. See, so don't confuse rationality with, with fear. People shouldn't be running their lives based on fear. They run their lives based on their rationality. And if they're fearless, they can apply that rationality so much better than if they're fearful. Because if they're fearful, their mind will be clouded and their reactions are likely to be, you know, not very clever because fear isn't a very clever thing. Fear is, is at the gut. Your mind stops working. You fight or flight. And if you're in front of something that chases things that run, then flight is just not the right choice, you see. And fight isn't the right choice either. You need to find something else to do between those two. And only a rational mind that can function will do that. So fear is never helpful. So you may think fear is helping you get through life. It should be that fear is hurting you, making it harder for you to get through life and that your rationality is helping you get through life. So you meet somebody and you see that they're a very negative person. They may be violent. They may be this. You don't walk away from them and, and get away because they frighten you. Well, you might, but that's only one reason. But that, again, any predator sees fear in you, smells fear on you. You become prey to that predator. So the fear, again, is a problem. <clears throat> so you see somebody that looks scary. Instead of being afraid, what you do is you decide, shall I approach? Shall I just walk backwards? Shall I go to the other side of the street? Shall I run? Shall I, you know, call for help? You have choices. You have all kinds of things you can do. Or shall I remember next time not to walk down this dark alley for the shortcut? You know, I'll take the long way around. That's, you know, where the streetlights are and learn something. But that's a rational mind. A fearful mind's not rational. So my, my thought is that she probably didn't run her life out of fear and fear wasn't really helping. She was being rational and fear really was a problem. But if a rational mind overcomes the fear, then she gets by. And how do you approach people or things that are scary without fear? It doesn't mean you're, you approach them willy-nilly. Like, well, I'm not, you know, I have no fear. Therefore, I'll go in the woods and oh, I see that, that grizzly bear. I'll just walk and slap him in the face because I don't fear anything. Well, that's not fear. <laughs> that's, not being, that's not being fearless. That's being stupid, you see. There's a difference. Fearless and stupid are not the same thing. If you're, <laughs> if you're fearless, you also have a brain and you can be thoughtful. And no, you don't slap the grizzly bear in the face. You, uh, that's not uh, what a fearless person does. A fearless person knows how to deal with that threatening situation and deals with it as best they can. A frightened person doesn't deal with anything. They're just frightened. They just freak out and whatever happens, happens. They probably end up as barefooted. So that's, that's it. So it's, it's 
fearless doesn't mean stupid. And a lot of people make that mistake. They say, well, if you're fearless, you know, why don't you go jump off the building? And as well, it's because I'm not stupid. All right. I think we got the, the context of her question right. Um, she says, uh, normally I can see that you, what you talk about perhaps has another dimension. And, of course, that's just what you've said. Um, I believe you've answered that. The next question comes from Shaw. And it has to do with anxiety in achieving successful results, such as maybe an oh, an out-of-body experience or healing. Um, have you ever gotten a feeling of tension or anxiety after achieving, or achieving a result? And how did you deal with that? Sometimes he feels a sense of anxiety or being overwhelmed uh, at the thought of, and that thought, um, he worries that uh, what he has achieved will come crashing down immediately. So how do you deal with that in the future so he can keep moving forward and getting results without feeling this anxiety? Okay, so he, he's healing someone, and then he loses confidence that he's doing anything. He starts to have anxiety about what he's doing or whether it works, that sort of thing. Well, that's a fear. So the fear is creeping into his process. It's the fear that's creating the anxiety. What he needs to do is find the source of that fear. And the source of it is probably he's afraid that uh, it won't work. He's afraid that uh, maybe he'll make it worse. He's afraid maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. And what if he hurts that person instead of helps them? Or he's uh, afraid that the whole thing's you know foolish and he's not doing anything at all. So somewhere he has a fear a fear of failure, a fear of perform not performing well, a fear of uh, being foolish. Only he can tell what the fear is, but he'll have a fear, and that fear then is kind of crashing in on him at the end of his process of doing the healing. He needs to deal with the fear, um, find, the, find the root of it, and just let it go. And if the fear is, let's say, I fear that... Um, I'm not really doing anything. I'm really wasting my time and I'm being foolish for this because it doesn't really work anyway. That's his fear. Well, he needs to then face that fear and say, well, maybe, maybe not. I'm just going to try it anyway. Maybe I am being foolish. And if I am, I'll accept that. If I learn later that I've been a fool all this time, I'll accept that. At least I, I tried, you know, I, I gave it a try to see how it would work. And here are my conclusions. I accept that being foolish is okay. That's the result of reaching out and trying to do something different. Sometimes you'll act foolish or you'll seem foolish or you'll look foolish. You have to accept that. Otherwise, you're afraid to reach out and try something different. So the point there is to find the fear and get rid of it so that, uh, you know, and you don't have to convince yourself, oh, this is true and right. And I'm and certainly I'm not being foolish. You know, that's that's the wrong approach. The right approach is to find the fear and say, well, it's okay. If I turn out, if it turn out later that all my attempts at healing are foolish because this stuff doesn't work anyway, I'll accept that. I'll learn something and I'll go on. But I'm not going to jump to that conclusion. I'm going to do the experiment and see what the answer is. See, that's open-minded skepticism. And if you have that, then you probably won't have this, this thing that crashes at the end. So find the fear, let the fear go, accept the worst, and then go on anyway. Don't be afraid to make mistakes or to look foolish. Find out. 
might turn out that you're not foolish. You won't know unless you actually do the work. Uh, the last question I'll try to condense very quickly because I don't know how much time we have. This is from Dom on the MBT forum. He's basically asking, this is a physical brain question, I, I suppose, too, that you may have answered. He's um, asking, would it seem likely that age-related calcification of the pineal gland could affect our ability to change data streams and explore NPMR? Well, yes, and the fact that all of that is, is uh, physical matter uh, stuff from the rule set. So if the rule set says that as you get older, you know, your brain uh, doesn't, comp doesn't function as well. Now, it's not, a, again, it's a virtual brain, but the rule set says that this virtual brain that has evolved in this virtual reality, right, all the, all the biology, all the physics, all the chemistry, which means brain chemistry and brain physics and, you know, brain, you know, electromagnetics, all of that stuff is just calculated. It's a virtual brain that's a calculated brain in a computer. And if the way this calculation goes, that as this entity ages, this, the brain begins to dysfunction or doesn't function as well, or its pineal gland gets calcified or whatever, then those changes calculated by the rule set would affect constraints on what the consciousness can get in their data stream. So it's just, that's just physical stuff. And, you know, we know that these avatars, when they can, as they grow, they start to become more dysfunctional. Eventually they die. They don't go on forever. Why is that? Because that's the science of biology causes that to happen that way, right? It's the, it's the biochemistry and it's the way we are. So that's just part of the rule set. And if the rule set has your brain deteriorating, then you end up, uh, if it deteriorates enough, I guess you end up, what, um, uh, senile. You know, you end up, maybe if you go past that, you end up in a coma. So you know, brain function can deteriorate, but that's a rule set function not a consciousness function. So yes, that's true. Calcification, and I don't know about what the pineal gland may or may not have to do with going out of body. You see, going out of body is just a switch of your, uh, of your intent. You just change data streams with an intent. You don't, you know, now whether that pineal gland has a, you know, is, is a rule set connection that you can't, uh, part of your brain can't make intents without it, but I don't think so. So the pineal gland thing is, I don't know whether that's connected to the rule, rule set or not, whether that really has anything to do with your ability to change, um, change, you know, data streams. I don't find that changing data streams isn't hard at all. It, it can be done in a microsecond and it can be done without any effort. It's such a simple thing. I don't think that depends on a, a pineal gland. So your ability to get out of body it's just your consciousness switching data streams, which I doubt has anything to do with your brain or your pineal gland, either one. But a calcified pineal gland, just like a hit on the head with an iron pipe, can change the constraints on your, on your uh, consciousness. Maybe it makes your consciousness forgetful, or maybe it uh, makes your consciousness sleep longer or something. I don't know, but rule sets does have effect on the constraints. One other question he had was, uh, was there any way to reverse these pathological effects? Well, yes. One, if, you know, if the, if the rule set, well, let's, let me put it a couple of ways. You can, you can help these things. The rule set says that, you know, you can't jump, 
more than, you know, three feet off the ground. Most of us can't jump anywhere near that far, but you can't jump more than, say, a certain distance off the ground. What can you do about that? Is there anything you can do about that pathology of not being able to jump any higher than three feet off the ground? Well, you can go train. You can, uh, you know, you can practice jumping, build up your leg muscles, lose uh, body weight in the upper body, gain gain muscle in the lower body, and you can maybe become a, a, a super duper jumper. Um, all of that has to do with your intent. You have to intend to do those things. Well, with your your intent, you can change things like decalcification of your pineal gland. If that's something going on in the rule set, who measures that? You know. There's lots of uncertainty about that. Things with lots of uncertainty, you can modify with your intent. You can just change the future reality to where it's not like that. So yes, you can change those kinds of things with your with your intent, and you can overcome them as well with training and practice and intent. You can change a lot of things. Um, you know, it has to, what your body does according to the rule set has a lot to do with your exercise. It's a physical thing, and your nutrition. You have control over that. See, that can change the constraints that the virtual body and virtual brain have just by uh, giving that virtual body its virtual food and its virtual nutrition because that's all part of the equation of you know what happens to the avatar. So yes, you can you can kind of fix things like that by eating right, exercising, staying. Uh, Staying alert. You know, they say that as far as your brain goes, it's use it or lose it. If you want your brain to stay healthy and functioning, then you have to keep thinking and using it, contemplating. And, uh, you know, if you sit down and watch TV and all day, then your brain is going to stop working. And pretty soon, you know, you're not going to have much capability. But that means you can't get it back. It's just harder to get back because now you no longer have the incentive to go out and work on it because you kind of gotten dull. So that's the that's the issue about getting back. You still have to have enough intent left over that you can take control. If you lose it, surely you can fix things like that. You know, particularly an illness that is doesn't show. It's hard to hard to uh, examine, hard to find out. I mean, how much calcification is on anybody's pineal gland? Who can tell? Who knows? Well, things that have a lot of uncertainty are the things that are most easily changed with your intent. <laughs> 